Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and we are recording this on December 16th, 2020. Joining me today is criminal defense attorney Mike Cavaluzzi, who is a friend of the program. Mike, we're so glad you're back. How are you? Um, It's so good to be here. Happy holidays, Anna. Happy holidays to you. I see your wreath in the back, and I believe that's a little Christmas tree back there. Oh, yeah, and I see your stockings and your Christmas Emmys. Yes. <laughs> Garland on the Christmas Emmys, yes. <laughs> no, it's, uh, your house looks great for the holidays. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have some breaking news for you, Mike. Guess what I received yesterday in the mail? A summons for jury duty. Oh, jury duty. Oh, my God. You know that it's one of the great benefits of being an American is that the Constitution guarantees us the right to a jury trial to be decided on by our peers. So I encourage everyone to abide by their jury summons and call the court. These are obviously really particular times and there are very few cases going to trial, but there are cases going to trial that might surprise people. But um, they're using really creative ways of having criminal cases um, actually go to trial in front of a jury. I know. I, I actually wanted to ask you because they included this like flyer in in my summons that says here for you, safe for you. And, you know, whenever the government is telling me that they're concerned about me and they <laughs> want to keep me safe, honestly, I'm very skeptical <laughs> about how much they care about me. But nonetheless, I, I did go through this and I do find it interesting that one of the changes they've made for jury duty is that you you're no longer going to be sitting there waiting in the in, in you know the room the assembly room to be called where you just basically have to be there and sit all day which i've always said is a massive waste of time so because of covid they are not doing that you still have to call in then if you do get called in i guess they must have made arrangements to keep us safe do you know what yeah. how that's is are you have you been in court so since this crazy pandemic? I, I have. I have not myself conducted a trial, but I've watched some trials um, being conducted during COVID. And you are right that under normal circumstances, there's a big jury room in which all the jurors gather in, and then they're uh, separately called out to courts as they're needed for jury selection. It's done a little differently now. What will happen is a very small number of jurors will be summoned directly to a trial court. So maybe somewhere between five and 10, maybe 12 max, they'll go right to a a courtroom. They'll sit out in the hallway, socially distanced. They'll be called into the room and they will be spread throughout the courtroom, including the jury box, and they'll start to get questioned. Normally, we would start with what we call a jury panel. 
of anywhere between 45 and 65 people who would crowd into the courtroom and we would start the process of jury selection. Now it starts with that very small number. And then as people get excused, they call in another very small number. So obviously it makes the jury selection process last a lot longer for judges, lawyers, prosecutors, um, but it's, it's very safe for the public. Very good. That's good to know. I've never been picked for a jury. I know I won't Neither get picked. Neither have I. I've never, they don't want me. You know why they don't want me? Because I ask too many questions. And, and, the, and the, you know, I've had judges actually question me saying, can I put my, and I don't know if it's a bias. It's, I said to them, it's my natural inclination. I know that the facts of the case are not always entirely included in the courtroom. And as long as I know that, I need to know what the rest of the facts are before I can make a decision. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll never be That's picked, exactly so it's right. nothing to worry about. <laughs> I'm not picked uh, for the same reason that I wouldn't pick me, and that's because I'm a lawyer. And the danger with having a lawyer on the jury panel is that the fear is that the lawyer's opinion will be elevated among other jurors, and they'll have the ability to influence other jurors. So I've, I've tried it once before when I was a much younger lawyer. I let a lawyer stay on the jury and I regretted it. <laughs> so Interesting. I keep them off now. Well, if for some reason I do get called into jury duty, I assure all of you, I will make every effort to do my podcast from there, even though the judge may not approve. <laughs> and I have no doubt that you would listen to all of the evidence fairly and impartially and render a just verdict, Anna as I do every week here on True Crime <laughs> Daily, the podcast. Now, the case is before us this week, Your Honor. <laughs> um, we've got some really twisted cases, as always. A Florida woman hid her roommate's dead body in a trash can so she could collect his social security checks, and she actually got away with it for a while. But first, a former assistant principal in Louisiana is accused of killing a pregnant teacher who was carrying his baby. The principal was married and having an affair with this teacher who worked at the same school as he did. And apparently the fear of being found out about the affair and the baby was the motivation for the murder, according to authorities. Now, though the murder happened in 2016, Mike, he, the assistant principal, is now facing new charges, and we will explain why four years later he hasn't gone to trial and why there's a new set of charges. It's a little complicated, and it has to do with jurisdiction, has nothing to do with the evidence or the actual crime itself. Okay, let's get right to it, Mike. Here's what happened. Robert Marks was an assistant principal at a magnet school in Baton Rouge. 40-year-old Lintel Washington was a teacher there. And the two had been having an affair. She was seven months pregnant with his baby. She was found dead. Now, friends say that Lintel was in love with him. She was swept off her feet. They'd been together for a year. And apparently, he, he had told her when they first got together that he was unhappy with his marriage, that he was in the process of getting a divorce. So obviously he was available for a relationship. You know where this is going, right? I do. Yeah, because it's always the same old story. Yeah. Lintel was a single mom. She had a three-year-old daughter. She had been named Teacher of the Year. She was a distinguished educator. And so everything appeared to be going great in her life. New man, 
new baby on the way. So a fabulous new future on the horizon for her and for her little girl. Okay. But then Lintel found out that the assistant principal had not left his wife. He was actually still married. And all yeah. of a sudden she realizes, this is according to friends, she realizes, dear Lord, I'm not the girlfriend. All of a sudden I'm the mistress and I am not okay with that. That is not the relationship I entered into. So she's obviously very upset about this. And so at the time of Lintel's disappearance and murder, she was pressuring Robert Marks to accept responsibility for the baby, to, to acknowledge their relationship, and to tell his wife. And friends say that she had threatened that if you don't tell your wife about me and the baby, I will tell yeah. her. Okay? So if that's the inciting incident that, that, that just triggered a domino of horrible, horrible, horrific crimes against this woman, I would say that was it. And of course, that is not the answer nor the solution. Of course not. But it so often is the unfortunate answer in cases like this, is that when men fear some kind of disclosure to a spouse or a girlfriend, or if they suddenly have to take upon the responsibility of an unwanted pregnancy by the woman they're having an affair with, uh, it is just all too often that they choose this uh, tragic recourse. It never makes sense to me, Mike. Why kill the person? How in the world is this a better solution to the problem? Yet over and over again, whether it's divorce or the telling of an affair, we see this as the answer. It's unbelievable to me. Well, you should watch Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors because the, the entire movie is about exactly that. It's about a man who's having an affair and the woman is threatening to tell his wife and he thinks that the only answer is to do away with her, and it's an, it's an interesting result. It is, but I have a thing about Woody Allen where I can't watch his movies anymore. <laughs> I get it. I right? understand. You know, the accusations against him and marrying his daughter, adopted daughter, it's, I, can't, I can't go there. I hear okay, you. and apparently your dog agrees with yes. me. <laughs> what I find so upsetting beside the crime itself is how authorities discovered that Lintel was missing and in danger. It's almost as horrific as the crime itself. So on June 9th of 2016, Lintel's three-year-old daughter is found walking alone in a parking lot on the street of Baton Rouge. And she's near the her mother's car, which is parked, and they're parked near where they live in an apartment building. This little girl is walking around. She's three by herself and her feet, her little feet are covered in blood. Turns out that is her mother's blood. It is unbelievable to me what this child has been put through and what she may have seen and what she may have heard and experienced. It's horrific that anyone, especially an educator, would do this in front of a child. Yeah, that's what's really, really shocking. I mean, unfortunately, we've see, seen situations um, in terms of the motivation for this murder and the circumstances of this murder. We've seen those time and time again, but it is so horrific that this happened in front of a three-year-old girl, and then that three-year-old girl was left to just wander the streets. And I just can't even imagine 
how this will impact the rest of her life and how there are memories buried deep inside of her that we might not even know yet. Oh, absolutely. So police get called, right? Because there's an abandoned child walking around with blood on her feet. And incredibly, the little girl, you know, because three-year-olds can be somewhat verbal and they're very good at, you know, pointing, leading, right? And so the little girl leads the police to the car. Now, this is her mother's car. And they say that inside the car was a huge amount of blood. But what was really weird was that in the car there was blood, but there were no clear bullet holes or shattered glass or anything else other than blood. The little girl told police that she was with her mother and Mr. Robbie, right? which would be what a little girl would probably call an adult, Mr. Robbie. And she said she was with her mom, Mr. Robbie, when she heard a loud noise, and then she saw him cleaning up blood. The little girl also said, Mommy is in a lake, which ultimately ends up being a ditch. But the girl was very clever to know it was water, right? That's right. That's right. So in her brain... It's not just water. It has to be like a lake or a river. Yeah, So she was very smart that way. And then she said, she told police that Mr. Robbie hurt her mother and that she was now sleeping. None of this is good. And when you see the amount of blood, so obviously police know this is a dangerous situation, meaning if she is indeed still alive, if the mother's still alive, they have to act quickly. So massive search begins by air, by land, bloodhounds, everything you can possibly imagine. But they cannot find the mother's body. In the meantime, because several days pass, it'll be about five days or so from the time that the little girl is found walking around until her mother's body is found. In that time frame, police start doing what they do. They start interviewing. Well, they want, obviously, the first thing police want to know is who is Mr. Robbie? And that doesn't take long to figure out because obviously her friends and family knew she was in a relationship with him. So they start interviewing and they start getting an entirely different story. Now they know that there is an affair. There is um, some kind of dispute over whether he's going to own up to the baby and do the right thing. Wait a minute. He's married. Hold on a second. She's challenging him. Okay. So. They also go through phone records. Obviously, they go through Lintel's phone records, and then ultimately, they go through Mr. Robbie's phone records. And here's what's very interesting. In text messages, according to police, Lintel asks Robert if he was, quote, attempting to avoid his responsibilities with our, quote, unborn daughter. That's according to the Associated Press. So now we know they're having a little girl, and they're... What what value is that right now? Because remember, the little girl's been found, teacher is missing, and we know she's pregnant and probably lost a lot of blood. Yeah. So that that's that information is going to point police right yeah, to Mister right, Robbie. Right, yeah, right to Mister Robbie, and also the it makes the crimes that much more serious because it triggers a kidnapping charge. Um, it triggers a separate murder charge for the unborn ch- born child because at seven months, that child is viable outside of the womb. So it is a full life. So he is now charged with double murder, 
kidnapping for murder, and these expose him to um, special circumstances charges and perhaps the death penalty. So Assistant Principal Robert Marks told authorities that he last saw Lintel at Walmart around 8 p.m. on June 8th, and that they just met there to talk. Now, this is important because June 8th, this is the day before the little girl is found missing. So he's claiming that's the last time that he saw his girlfriend, mistress. But the cell phone tells, different, tells a different story. <laughs> yes, it does. His cell phone and her cell phones track. Right. They show that they're, they travel to Iberville Parish later that night before returning to the area where the car is. So basically, both their cell phones, right, tracked in the same locations and ultimately both somehow ended up back at the car. So police know that's not true, and they're using the GPS information to search those areas where they believe the two of them were, which could lead them to either where she was killed or where her body is. Yeah. Well, the search continues. It doesn't turn up Lintel until a farmer goes out to an irrigation ditch, the lake that the little girl mentioned, five days later on June 14th in an irrigation ditch near a sugarcane field is where Washington was found. She was dead, so was her, the baby she was carrying that was seven months old. She had been shot in the head at close range. So police believe that Robert shot Lintel in the head at a landfill, then carried her body, put her back in the car, which would explain why there was so much blood in there, then drove her body. This is the amazing thing, though, Mike, with the little girl in the car the whole time. Right? Because she heard the gunshot. Then she sees mommy coming back into the car. Then she sees mommy being carried out. Then mommy doesn't come back. He drives her home, essentially, and just leaves her in the car. She could have walked in traffic. She could have been killed. She could have been abducted by someone who would have killed her, right? A million things could have happened to that little girl. And he was probably hoping they would have happened, unfortunately. That is one of the tragedies, is that knowing that she was a witness, perhaps he was hoping that something bad would happen to her and she would not be found or she would not be able to be a witness against him. Oh, that's so diabolical. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. Uh, But it's not, you know, it's just... It, it, it makes, makes me sense. wonder, it makes me wonder, though, whether on some level this was a crime of passion, because it's hard to imagine that he would have sort of planned this and gone through with the plan to murder Lintel in front of her three-year-old daughter and not have a plan of how to deal with the daughter. And so either this was a crime of passion on some level, they had some kind of an argument and things went south and he suddenly came up with the idea of this being a solution or he had plotted this out and this little girl was something he hadn't thought of and that suddenly she was a part of this and he didn't know how to deal with her. Oh, it's, it's all makes my stomach turn no matter it's how you look at so it. It's all so horrible. Oh, geez, Louise. Well, so again, the, the daughter is a witness to all of this. Oh, let me ask you this, Mike. She's three years old. She's not going to be put on the stand. I mean, by the time, well, actually, no. Now she's 
um, about seven years old because four years have passed. Yeah. Would she ever be put on the stand? So generally with child witnesses that age, there are a number of things that you need to consider. And first and foremost is whether they are competent to testify. And that is whether at that young age, because three is very young, they understand the difference between the truth and a lie. Okay. And they understand what the value of that difference is. So that is one of the early things that law enforcement does before they even interview these kids. And those interviews are often captured on videotape. So if in fact they questioned her and it appeared clear that she understood what what the truth and a lie is and she were testifying honestly um, and spontaneously as to what she knew and saw, they could use that evidence to then um, restore her memory as she gets older. So to make sure, and this might sound awful to some viewers, but to make sure that she doesn't fully forget and become incapable of testifying, they may find ways to preserve her memory and make sure that she is able to testify four years later to what she witnessed at three years three years old. And, th- and, and those interviews are often conducted by non-law enforcement individuals, by social workers or child psychologists, people who have a specific expertise in interviewing kids of that age. But that is very young. We more commonly see young witnesses who are seven, eight, nine, ten years old and more clearly understand that difference between uh, right and wrong, the truth and a lie. But a three-year-old, they are just reaching that uh, place of consciousness. And like you said, they're becoming very talkative. And so, so it is it is possible, Mike, that they could then just use those videotaped interviews as evidence and not have to put the child on the stand. It's possible, but it's challenging because the, child is, because the child is technically available as a witness. And the defense has should have the opportunity to question that witness. And as indelicate as it may seem, and as awful as it may seem, um, you know, this defendant still deserves a defense. He still deserves an attorney. He still deserves the opportunity to make any arguments that he thinks are relevant, if not to his innocence, perhaps relevant to the charge itself. For example, if this were a charge of a crime of passion, that impacts what he ultimately gets convicted of. But the other way they could use this testimony, the the statements of the child in a really smart way is, um, as you know, all out of, out of court statements are hearsay. Every out, every statement that's made out of court is hearsay. And often it's not allowed in a trial. Okay. But there is a, non-hearsay exception here, which is when statements are made to show why certain actions were taken. So maybe perhaps the police can use the statements of the little girl and what she said, not for the truth of the matter asserted, but how those statements impacted their own investigation. And that would be an exception to the hearsay rule and may allow those statements to come in without ever exposing that little girl to cross-examination. Yeah, because that would definitely be very traumatic, as if it's not traumatic enough. Very traumatic and very hard for a defense lawyer, not something that any of us would, would like to do. 
Right. So then two days after Lintel's body is found, this would be now June 17th, Robert Mark, Robert Marks is arrested on charges related to Washington's three-year-old. It's very interesting, right? They're still trying to figure out how she was killed, who may have killed her. But what the authorities decide is, you know what? We can arrest him because of the little girl, because the little girl says she was abandoned by him. Yeah. So they arrest him for aggravated kidnapping, desertion of a child. And then, of course, he would be facing the more serious crimes of potentially first degree murder. And of course, it is, is it called feticide? Am I pronouncing yes. that? Yes. Or feticide? Feticide, I think, but it's honestly not a term that I've come across very often. I mean, these types of cases are unbelievably rare where um, uh, children are killed in the womb and considered victims of murder. They're not cases we see every day. No, and sometimes they just go ahead and they charge murder on that child, not just feticide. Yeah. Right? Yes, but I'm not saying... Yes, that's right. That, that they use a different that, term is what I'm that, saying. That, that, that's right. That's right. Here they're saying that, and this is probably based on the statements and the understanding that he didn't want that child. They're saying that he was specifically, intentionally committing, I'm going to say feticide, um, as opposed to the child just dying as a collateral consequence to, to murdering the mother. So now let's go. We go from June to October. Robert Marks is indicted on second, second degree murder and then the murder of the baby. He claims that he's innocent. His attorney says at that time, look, the two of them were friends, but that was it. And he would not at all address the allegations that Lintel was carrying his baby. Now, this is what I find interesting. And this, this is like a pet peeve of mine. Why second-degree murder on this? Because first-degree murder very specifically requires premeditation, which is some degree of time in which a plan is made and executed to kill someone. So he had a gun. He shot her. Understood. Right? No, that's all understood. But if you don't really have extremely specific facts to really show that planning and execution, it is very common for the prosecution to start with a second degree murder charge while they develop the first degree murder investigation. Because here it was something like I was saying earlier, Anna, that if you don't know the exact circumstances of what happened, it is possible that he carries a gun with him, that he had a fight with her, that she was being in his mind unreasonable that he was in immediate uh, danger of her reporting this to his wife and his entire marriage falling apart, his entire life falling apart. And he immediately developed a, not developed, but immediately acted upon a passion to get rid of the problem. And he pulled out his gun and he shot. That is a possibility. That could be a defense, that this was not planned. It was not premeditated. And then it falls down to second degree murder. And what will get you even more upset is that it could even drop further to a voluntary manslaughter, which carries significantly less time um, than a second-degree murder, because at least in California, second-degree murder still can carry life. Mm. Uh, A voluntary manslaughter, which is what his defense attorneys most likely will argue for, 
does not carry life and carries significantly less time. And what we have not heard yet, even though there have been several indictments, and we'll explain that process in a bit, is we have not heard really much of the forensic evidence, any DNA, any of that. Um, but it, you know, what was she fighting? Any we we haven't heard. Yeah, that yet. you know, it, it is really interesting though, because over the last, especially the last decade or so, cell phone records have become a kind of DNA evidence to track someone and where they are, what they're thinking through text messages, social media. So that in and of itself, that cell data information, the defense will definitely get their own experts to verify whether these towers were accurate in determining where each of them were, Robert and Lintel. But um, it could really help develop the prosecution's first-degree murder theory showing that he lied about when he last saw her, okay? And that could show consciousness of guilt, consciousness of a plan, and also that he drove her around to different locations showing a premeditation to kill her. So these cell phone records, because I, uh, you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years, and when I first started, there were not these, social, these cell phones that could be tracked everywhere, there were not smartphones, there was not social media, and all of these ways that law enforcement has now to develop their cases and to find their suspects and prosecute them. Well, here's something else that frankly does shock me. During this entire thing, his wife, yes, his wife stands by him. It's like, really, lady? <laughs> okay. Now, get this. So the principal's wife, Kayla Marks, decides to go on the Nancy Grace show. Let's all bow to the great goddess of crime reporting, <laughs> Nancy Grace, right? Nancy Grace. Nancy Grace. She has my respect without question, all right? She goes on the Nancy Grace show, and she tells the world, Mrs. Marks tells the world that she doesn't believe that her husband killed the teacher. Because my guess is it's probably impossible for her to imagine, I would agree, if someone that close to me could do something as heinous as this, right? It's not like it's a struggle and one fell down, bumped yeah. their head, right, fell but, off a cliff kind of thing. But it also shows how men like Robert Marks victimize women over and over again in different ways. You know, when the wife herself becomes a victim of his manipulation his lies, perhaps his emotional abuse of her, or whatever he does to try and persuade her to stay on his team. You know, so it, it, it's just men like that. It is not uncommon for them to target and pick out women who are susceptible to that kind of, um, we'll call it BS. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think that Mrs. Marks actually helped him. I mean, definitely it was a curiosity. It's like, what? Well, what yeah. does she see in him and why does she believe this? Okay, so she doesn't believe that her husband killed the teacher. And she said that her husband was truly a loving man and a great husband. But here is where I think she may have actually hurt her husband's case. So Nancy Grace, in full-on Nancy Grace style, presses the wife about where was he on the night of the murder? Was he with you, Mrs. Marks? No. He went to a friend's house to watch a basketball game. Nancy Grace is like, 
really? Where did he go? What is that friend's name? And Mrs. Marks, the wife, never, ever was able to say who that friend was. It's unclear whether, one, she doesn't know the person's name. Two, the person may not exist, right? Three, I mean, she may... She may very well be thinking, wait a minute, you know, in that moment where you're being pressed on television to tell, yeah, to tell the truth. So if that's his alibi, and here's the other problem I have with that, right? The cell phone data does not show him sedentary somewhere yeah. that would corroborate that he's sitting in somebody's living room watching a basketball that's game. Right. So That's for right. Mrs. Marks to go on television, defend her husband, and then and then try to provide such a shady alibi. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but also from, from her perspective, in terms of how useful a witness she would be for the prosecution, um, she might be able to say she was nervous on TV, she was confused, she was thinking of another night, a different friend. The more powerful evidence is what you talked about um, right after that, which is again that DNA style evidence of cell phone tracking, which is very, very hard to defend against um, because it's become very sophisticated, very reliable about where someone's phone is pinging and what sort of circumference of area they're in based on where their phone is. So while that sideshow is playing out on television, the prosecutors and the courts get into a dispute about which parish or county has jurisdiction over this case. So all of a sudden, everything is shifting in the legal system. Now it's not so much about, you know, the the murder and everything. It's like, where did the murder occur? Because a judge rules, look. I realize you have this indictment, you got this indictment from this parish, but there is some question as to whether the murder occurred elsewhere and her body was found elsewhere. Therefore, we need you, meaning the prosecutor, to go back to a different parish and sit another, convene another grand jury and go through this all over again. Can you imagine? That's what this is what the government and what prosecutors have spent the last four years on. Yeah, yeah. Convening two grand juries that ultimately came up with the exact same conclusion. Yes. Right? Which yeah, is, but, but jurisdiction is a legitimate legal question. I mean, that is, it, it's considered a technicality by people. But well, I don't understand, matters. Mike. Explain to me. So does it matter where the murder is, com- is committed versus where the body is found? Absolutely. It's where the, because there, there are two different crimes. One of them is the murder itself and jurisdiction can be about county, about city, about state. And the other is transporting the body, which is not the murder. <laughs> You're transporting the body into another county and that becomes its own separate crime of where you're dumping the body, but it's where the murder occurs which is what triggers that jurisdictional question of who has the authority to arrest and prosecute. So if, if a body's found in California, but the person was murdered in New York, the murder trial is going to be in New York and not in California? Absolutely. It's where the murder occurred. New York has jurisdiction. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> a crime reporter learns something every day on one of these podcasts. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, ultimately, Robert Marks, 
was indicted again. <laughs> same charges, same thing. The and that and that's what what triggered us to yeah. revisit this case now. So just recently, grand jurors in Louisiana indicted Marks on a series of these fresh charges, including once again second degree murder, feticide, aggravated kidnapping, two counts of kidnapping, obstruction of justice, and four gun charges. Marks is being held on $885,000 bond. He has yet to enter any formal pleas on these new charges. However, on the original charges, he did enter a not guilty plea. So we will, of course, assume for the purposes of this that he's going to plead the same thing and is going to maintain his innocence in this case. Fascinating. This case is fascinating to me. And we're going to watch that one, and we're going to keep everybody updated. And I am sure that as we speak, his attorneys are very much focused, perhaps not so much on his innocence, but on the degree of culpability here. I, I think that's what his lawyers are probably focused on. Just a thought. And how Mr. Robbie ever thought that this was a good way out of his problem is beyond me. Me too. Now on to our second case in Florida. This is where a woman has confessed to hiding a body in a trash can in order to collect on Social Security checks. 48-year-old Michelle Haney says that in July, she found her roommate, 39-year-old John Christopher Leonard, dead inside the mobile home that they shared. We don't know what relationship, if any, they had other than roommates. Okay, so it's July your roommate is dead. Do you call 911? No. No. Instead, not in July 2020. <laughs> <laughs> no. You do These not are call. Very unique times, Anna. <laughs> very unique times indeed. So instead of calling 911 with this dead body in front of her, she decides to wrap him up in a bed sheet and then put him in the closet for three weeks because, right, that's where I would put a dead body is the closet for three weeks. And apparently, I don't know if she was trying to concoct or dream up a better plan, but here's the plan that she indeed, she indeed came up with. Now, the, what we're telling you is what she has confessed to police, according to police. All right, here's the plan. Are you ready? Brace yourself for the brilliance that you are about <laughs> to experience. She decided to move out of the mobile home. Oh, there you go. <laughs> If I just leave, everything will be fine. And she can't leave the body in the closet. So she then goes to one of her neighbors in the mobile home park and she says, hey, I'm moving out, but could you hold on to a couple of my things? <laughs> she says, um, I'm actually going to store them in a trash bin because that's where I usually put all of my valuables. What about you, Mike? Right? <laughs> yeah, in a trash bin. In a trash bin. And again, you know, and how how hideous is this? This is just horrible. So it's September and she decides she's going to move out. She tells her neighbor that it's mostly clothes, heavy plates and kitchen stuff. That's why the trash bin is as heavy as it is, not because it has a dead body in it. What I don't understand is why wasn't anyone looking for John Christopher Leonard, right? Yeah. At this point, he's been missing like two months and nobody's come knocking on the door. No family members have come by and said, hey, Michelle, have you seen John? 
But again, these are very unique times in which people are isolating themselves in their homes and perhaps not communicating as often with their loved ones or friends or going out into the neighborhoods as as, as we might expect. That's so, true. Um, okay. That, that might explain why people weren't questioning why they didn't see him around the stores or the neighborhood or anything like that. Right, right. And we don't, we don't know what he died of, and we also don't know... Um, what ailments he may have had or disabilities that would have led him to be collecting social security at such a young age, 39 years old. Generally, it's some kind of a medical condition, but we don't know that. And it does seem fairly clear that she is not um, suspected of any involvement in his actual death because the charges are so specific here and involve no type of homicide. They could even charge negligent homicide if they wanted to, and they're not charging that here. So it does seem to me that the evidence is probably very clear that he died of some kind of natural cause that had nothing to do with her. Right. And that they do believe that when she came home, he was already dead and she had nothing to do with that. So she tells the neighbor, we're still back at the trash bin here. She tells the neighbor, it's really, really heavy. So here I'm, she even gives him a dolly to help move the trash bin. So now the trash bin is moved onto his screen porch, and he's not treating it like trash, obviously, because he believes it has her belongings in it. All right. So let us now remember a few things. It is blazing hot in Florida pretty much the entire time. So now this trash bin has been sitting in that Florida heat for months because it's December. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, The man, the neighbor who's holding this, she never came back. She leaves in September, gives him the trash bin, never comes back. Now the thing is starting to smell and he's beginning to wonder what the heck is in here. Probably he would have thought something like I would have thought, oh, dear Lord, did she leave actual trash in there like food that's rotting or something that's smelling? So he opens it up to see what's in there. So as the neighbor is digging around the trash bin to figure out what in the world is causing the smell... He finds an arm and a hand, freaks out, and he does call police, which is the right thing to do. So that's when, obviously, he tells police who this belongs to, tells them the whole story, and clearly they know who they're looking for. They finally go to Michelle, and that's when she admits to police this story that we have just told. She also admits that she did not call 911 and the reason she didn't call 911 was so she could collect continue to cash in his $1200 a month check from social security and that was the motivation to not say anything she then goes on to explain to police which we have absolutely no sympathy for she explained that it wasn't easy to get the body in the bin that she had to quote full twist distort and squeeze his body in just horrendous. I mean, honestly, how disrespectful. And the sheriff called her actions absolutely despicable and quote, this is no way to treat a human like a piece of trash. And that is what she did. She treated him like a piece of trash. And he was a human being who deserved dignity. Look, he died. She did not cause that according to authorities. I accept that. But it's it's what happened afterwards, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a horrible crime and, you know, I don't mean to excuse it in any no. way, shape or form, no. of course, but we are living in these crazy times in which people are, uh, I think mentally, emotionally, it's taking an enormous toll and perhaps it created in her a kind of panic and um, impulsivity that she normally would not have had. I don't know this woman. Perhaps she's just nuts to begin with, but perhaps she was, these times have created real desperation in her. And my hope would be that she was acting out of that desperation and not in her right state of mind. I don't know. She sounds like an opportunist with absolutely no regard for human life and his family or anybody else. I get it, but I'd want to know more about the specific history there, about her own history um, and uh, her own emotional history, mental health history, the relationship between the two of them, and uh, maybe financial dire straits that she was in. Because like I said, it doesn't excuse the crime, but perhaps on some level it gives insight into the conduct. Well, the official cause of death has still not been released by authorities. Leonard's autopsy is still pending. Michelle Haney has been charged with abuse of a corpse. That seems to be the only charge. And she's being held on a $50,000 bond at the Manatee County Detention Center. That's right. You know, separately, she could face federal charges on the Social Security theft. Oh, that right. Often the jurisdiction may not be with the state on those charges. So there is most likely a pending federal investigation as well that she was stealing the $1,200 uh, a month uh, Social Security checks he was receiving. And that would be pretty easy to trace. And that will be very easy to trace. Okay, we'll watch that one. All right, it is time for our comment section. These are the crimes which you all are talking about. Now, this crime really infuriates me because it happened during a pandemic and the target of the crime are, are emergency responders. So I'm just outraged at this because this is foolishness, what is going on in Brooklyn. EMTs in Brooklyn are being held up at gunpoint and this, hap this has happened twice and they were responding to fake 911 calls and it happened twice in one week. This is what is so appalling about this. So these EMTs are on duty and then they get lured by these fake emergency calls. They're responding yeah. to what they think is truly an emergency. So there were two men, EMTs, a 23-year-old and a 25-year-old. This is the first incident. They're riding in an elevator of a building. They're in East Williamsburg. It's 2.40 in the morning, all right? And, and they're stopped on the elevator on the sixth floor when a man with a gun approaches them. The suspect threatens the EMTs, stole their radios, their tech bag, their medicine, whatever equipment they had on. Then the, the, the holdup guy, this idiot, presses all the buttons on the elevator so they can't follow him or get away. It is like the most, it is like a, a home alone childish thing to push on yeah. top of everything else, right? All the buttons in the elevator. Okay, so thank God they weren't hurt. Absolutely, without question. Thank God they were not hurt. Second incident. A lot of similarities here. 
two volunteer EMTs are robbed at gunpoint while responding to a 911 call about a child having difficulty breathing. Okay, so, you know, they're trying to get there fast. But once they're inside the elevator, guess what happens? Armed man with a gun shows up, takes their radio. One of them had a tablet, their medical bag. And punches all the buttons in the elevator so the EMTs couldn't follow him. All right? So now the, the problem is if you're, if you're the cops or you're the, 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 the people in the ambulance, how in the world can you now, with any sense of security, respond to an emergency? How, how can you do this without fearing for your life? Because there's this guy, and it's probably the same guy, who's coming after you. Yeah. I mean, that's why they're heroes, though, right? Is because EMTs, police officers, that whenever they respond to any call of a crime or an emergency or suspicious circumstances or anything, they know that they're placing themselves in potentially harm's way. And even though this seems like something that an EMT would not anticipate, I think they do. I think they're trained how to handle and manage a situation like that. And I think it's why they're so heroic is because they are always placing themselves into environments that are unpredictable, chaotic, and dangerous. But this goes beyond that, right? We're not talking about getting to the scene of a car accident or a shooting and there might be an active shooter and you're trying to save and resuscitate someone. We are talking about them walking into a building. Yes, I know the building can be dangerous, but these are fake bogus calls. They are being lured. But, set I, think up. Even, but I think even there, Anna, I think that EMTs and police officers know when they get calls that that is one thing that might be happening, that the call is not real, that it's a fake call. And that they could find themselves in a circumstances, as these EMTs did here, in which they're the victims of a crime. And, you know, there are people out there that are going to do these horrible, horrible things. I want to focus on the fact that these individuals, EMTs, police officers, emergency medical workers, are always placing themselves in harm's way, and they deserve our respect, our admiration, and to be treated like the heroes that they are. And I do agree with you there, Mike, but the other component to this is while these EMTs are responding to these fake 911 calls, somebody's mother or father could be having a That's heart right. attack at the other end of town, and, and there could be a delay because the EMTs in the middle of a pandemic, right? That's right. And, <laughs> I, and when, I just, it's and so short-sighted. Person, when this person is caught, and I believe that he will be caught, then that will be an aggravating factor in his sentence, and he'll receive an increased punishment because the crime that he committed placed had, had a collateral consequence of placing other people in harm's way. Well, I think a lot of our you know, viewers, listeners, subscribers feel as frustrated as we do. Here, yeah. here are their comments. Um, Leatrice S. writes, this is sad and just horrible. SMH, shaking my head, without question. Dina N., why would they want to rob them of that stuff? People are seriously nutjobs. And John B. writes, wow, that is low. Oh, it's low. It's about as yeah. low as it gets. Yeah. All right. 
Our next case in the comments section, a man serving a 90-year sentence for marijuana is finally released from a Florida prison. Richard DeLisi, 71 years old, walked out of a Florida prison after serving 31 years. DeLisi is believed to be the longest-serving nonviolent cannabis prisoner. DeLisi was sentenced to 90 years for marijuana trafficking back in 1989. He was 40 years old. And even though the typical sentence at the time was a tad shorter, not very, 12 to 17 years, he believes that he was targeted with the lengthy sentence because the judge mistakenly thought that he was part of an organized crime family because he's an Italian from New York. I would just I'm an Italian from New York. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not the member of a crime family, I promise. <laughs> Although, you know, our regular viewers know this. I always refer to our, our, our greater group of listeners and viewers as the crime family. And when one joins, I always say to them, welcome to the crime family, because that's well, how I think of this. this is a crime family I want to belong to. Yes, and 4.2 million strong. It's a pretty big crime family. All right, back to Mr. DeLisi. So um, a lot happened in his personal life while he was serving that 90-year sentence. DeLisi's wife died, as did his 23-year-old son and both of his parents. His adult daughter was in a horrific car accident and suffered a paralyzing stroke as a result. And then he's never met his two granddaughters, which hopefully he is now catching up on. So it really... I don't think there's a case quite like this if he is the longest serving, if he got the longest sentence yeah. that we can find in the United States for what truly is, well, now not a crime or back then really when you, no matter what, was still a minor crime. It may have been against yeah. the law, but in the scheme of things, it was not quite the same. Yeah, the, you know, the tough on crime drug laws that really uh, stretch from the early 1970s all the way up until really the last decade, maybe, have had just such horrific consequences in people's lives. And while Delisi might have suffered the longest sentence as um, anyone else, he was 40 years old when he was trafficking drugs. There are so many examples of young kids, 18, 19, 20 years old, who spent years, perhaps even decades in prison for nonviolent drug offenses that they committed when they were teenagers. So the tragedies are so widespread and so damaging here. And it, it really is very heartening as a defense attorney to see these sweeping changes in criminal justice reform that are specifically being applied to drug offenses um, not only for certain drugs like marijuana, which have really become accepted now and legalized in so many states, including in this past election, but also um, even the more serious drugs that were ravaging uh, urban communities in the 80s and in which addicts themselves were selling only to support their own addiction. So to see us finally paying attention um, to that sort of epidemic of, of drug addiction and what it causes is, is, is really heartening and, and a real positive move, I think, in criminal justice reform. 
Angela N. writes, 90 years, so, so unbelievable. And Shannon G., anyone on a life sentence for cannabis conviction should be let go. It's absolutely heartbreaking that most of these people serve longer than rapists and murderers. And that is an injustice. And, and that was often very, very true because the people being convicted of those crimes were so often coming from disadvantaged communities. And look, we don't often see it with Italian-Americans, but Delisi may have been right, that there was a perception by the judge that he was part of a larger crime syndicate and he got punished for it. Whereas people who are out there committing these horrific crimes, especially sexual assault crimes throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s, were getting so far less time than people accused and convicted of petty drug crimes. Mm-hmm. And that is a crime indeed. Well, Mike, that is this week's show. Thank you so much for coming on and helping us to better understand and to educate us about the law. Thank you so uh, much for having me on so close to the holidays, too. This has been so much fun seeing all the decorations and, and uh, celebrating the holidays with a little crime. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nothing says Christmas like, you know, like crime. <laughs> like crime. Absolutely. Well, you know, I have this little climbing elf behind me. Uh-huh. I bought him in July and he actually climbs the ladder and all this and he plays music. But after I put him up, I took a good look at his face. I swear to you, he looks like Chucky. He's like got the face of a serial killer. So I'm like, I can't even let him upstairs anywhere near the knives. I'm just like, he's just, and I posted this on social media and uh-huh. like quite a few of you know our listeners and viewers are like oh yeah he's a little on the creepy side (laughs) every christmas i get some new decoration and this year you can't see them from here but i got the peanuts christmas dance party which is basically all of your favorite peanuts characters dancing to christmas music it's pretty incredible Oh, I love it. You know, I was showing my girlfriend, I saw something um, and I said, oh, we have to get this. It's a manger scene, but I think like it's a Peanuts manger scene. And I think Woodstock is like the baby Jesus. (laughs) It is. I just, that, that Charlie Brown Christmas special is just warms my heart every year. It does. It does. I know. And I love, I think my favorite though, I love, I love that. And it's a wonderful life. Zuzu's petals. I always cry. All all of them. All of them. Yeah. yeah. And I love Elf. I, I, I I mean, I, I laugh so hard at that. And my God, Home Alone. Oh, I love Home Alone. Oh, and that's a great one. I've been watching the colorized I Love Lucy specials, which have been really (gasps) great. So Mm -hmm. yeah, so much to watch out there. So much. So, so Mike, where can people find you, follow you on social media, or reach out to you if they need an attorney? <laughs> well, <laughs> all you have to do is Google my name. I come up all over the place, or Cavaluzzi Law. And remember that C-A-V-A-L-L-U-Z-Z-I. That's how you find me. Just Google. Okay. And I'm Anna G News on all social media sites. That's Anna with one N. Um, and we've got a little programming note. Uh, the team is going to take a little time off for the holidays. Very well deserved. It's been an insane year. But we have recorded a special episode of True Crime Daily, the podcast, which will be released during the holidays. And this is, um, we take a deep dive into an exoneration case. And basically, this is a man who was convicted of murder And really, the only so-called evidence against him were very tentative witness IDs 
And there were all sorts of problems with the lineup and the mug book. Wow. And he didn't really fit the description of the alleged killer. And so he ends up being convicted, spends more than 20 years in prison. And then he's finally freed because he gets a great attorney who sticks by him the whole time. Uh, several of the Innocence Projects work with him. Plus, some journalism students go back, find the original witnesses and go back and get new statements that basically have the witnesses that led to his conviction saying, I told the cops I wasn't sure that that he was the one. In fact, they even found that the prosecution withheld police notes that clearly said the yeah. witnesses were not sure in the mugshot and the lineup. Held, held, held. So he didn't know it was kept secret. And of course, the jury didn't know. They were never told the truth. So well, this is a great case. The most common evidence that results in wrongful convictions, and ultimately we see that in a lot of these exoneration cases, are false identifications and false confessions. Those are the two most common types of evidence that create these wrongful convictions. So I hope any of your viewers who ultimately are, become jurors well, remember that when you're sitting on a jury to truly inquire and really consider evidence involving identification and confession. So that podcast will be out in lieu of our regularly scheduled podcast. So please look I out look for forward it. It's, to it. It's a really it's a really special case. Also, we could not have had this year or do this podcast that so many of you support without the amazing team behind the scenes. Now, they all cherish their privacy, so I will only use first names to protect the innocent. But we must send out a massive thank you, especially here at the holidays, to our team. Sophie, Stephanie, Bob, Moses, Richard, David, and Rodney. We couldn't do it without you. They're the people who make this happen, and they're an amazing team and we managed to move this entire project from the studio to everybody's home when nobody's internet was working. And we managed to keep this podcast going. So I thank them as much as I thank our amazing, amazing crime family. You're, you're great. I read your comments. You know, I do. We have wonderful people. I mean, these are people listen to our podcast on Fridays. One lady's making cupcakes in the morning. The other <laughs> one is knitting. I just love to hear your comments. I love to hear your theories. And you know that I respond to you. So please continue to reach out to us and share your theories. As always, you can find our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and on YouTube. And of course, get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week. Well, yes, next week in a way. Until next year, I should say. <laughs> I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This is True Crime Daily, the podcast reminding you, don't do crime. <laughs>